Well, thank you, Kate. Um, it's very good to be here. I actually practice this form of Christian meditation myself every morning, so this does feel like a kind of spiritual home. This is the only place I know where I can sit and do what I do anyway with lots of other people. And it's very good to do that. My new book is called Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. And by going beyond, I mean going beyond mundane, ordinary states of consciousness into um, more inclusive states of consciousness, sometimes called mystical experiences, sometimes called a sense of presence, sometimes called a deeper understanding, sometimes called a greater sense of connectedness. Mystical experiences, no doubt, have happened ever since humans became human, and they often happen spontaneously. When I was growing up, I thought that mystical experiences were things only experienced by a few Hindu saints and perhaps some Christian mystics long ago and far away. But the research of Sir Alistair Hardy, who is a biologist, was a biologist, uh, starting 50 years ago, um, looked at mystical experiences in modern Britain. And he launched a series of inquiries. And what he found was that many people have mystical experiences spontaneously. Some estimates are that at least 50% of the population have had them. They're not at all rare. And, uh, of course, they're rare in people's lives. In most people's lives, they only occur occasionally. But some people have had them as children, and some people have had them as grown-ups spontaneously. Some have them in the form of near-death experiences, which are more common now than they've ever been before, because far more people nearly die than used to. Um, in the past, uh, large numbers of people who had heart attacks and serious accidents would simply die. Now they're resuscitated, thanks to modern medicine. So the frequency of near-death experiences has greatly increased. So these are spontaneous mystical experiences. Uh, sometimes they come to people who are completely unprepared for them. Many people who have near-death experiences maybe in this, uh, they go through a kind of tunnel into a state of bliss or joy. Uh, then, of course, they have to come back because it's only a near-death experience. Um, uh, many people have an experience lasting maybe two or three minutes, but uh, so powerful that it changes the course of their whole life. And many of these experiences change people's lives. So sometimes they happen spontaneously, but they also happen as a result of spiritual practices. And there are many kinds of spiritual practice, and all religions have their own combination, or many combinations of them, and also, um, in the modern world, many people uh, call themselves spiritual but not religious and have spiritual practices outside the context of a religious tradition. And this is a relatively new phenomenon, but it's quite a common one in the modern West. In my previous book, um, Science and Spiritual Practices, I looked at seven different spiritual practices which have been scientifically investigated. Um, and in this book, which is a sequel, I look at seven further practices. This is not an exhaustive catalogue of all possible practices, and there are many more, 
Um, but uh, this is an example of a wide variety of practices. Now, what makes our current situation different from anything that's happened before is the fact, firstly, that we are now aware of practices from many different traditions. A hundred years ago, two hundred years ago in Britain, people would only have known of Christian practices and perhaps Jewish practices. And people in other parts of the world would only have known of those from their own tradition. But we now have access to practices from all over the world. There are millions of people in the West who do yoga, for example, which a hundred years ago most people would never have heard of. Many people meditate, and many people weren't aware of the meditative tradition until relatively recently. Um, there are people who do shamanic practices from South America with ayahuasca or other mind-altering substances. Um, there, there people do kirtan chanting from the Hindu tradition. There are many, many different practices which are going on in modern London and elsewhere in the world. And the other thing that makes the present situation different is that these are now being studied scientifically. And um, there was a period when many people in the scientific world were opposed to every kind of religion or spirituality, thought it was all rubbish, nonsense, a waste of time. Um, uh, but now uh, there have been uh, many studies, literally thousands of studies, which uh, have been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, uh, which look at the effects of spiritual practices. They have measurable effects on physiology, on brain activity, on health and well-being. And the most noticeable feature of the effects on health and well-being is that these practices, generally speaking, strongly promote health and well-being. People who do them are usually happier, healthier and live longer than those who don't. That presumably means the converse is also true. People who don't do them are unhappier, unhealthier, and live shorter than those who do them. And this has not been lost on militant atheists. Um, there are, there are Old-style atheists used to reject all kinds of spiritual and religious practices. But new-style atheists have recognised uh, the importance of them, or at least of some of them, particularly meditation. Sam Harris, for example, one of the so-called New Atheists, author of The End of Faith, um, is now giving online meditation courses. Susan Blackmore, one of our leading uh, public atheists here in Britain, is a devout Zen meditator and uh, wrote a book on Zen practice and uh, advocates it strongly. Uh, Alain de Botton, the atheist philosopher, wrote a book a few years ago called Religion for Atheists, uh, in which he advocates religious-type practices for atheists. The reason he does so is because he says that if you're a practicing atheist, it means you stop all spiritual practices. You no longer sing together with other people on a regular basis. You no longer gather in holy places. You no longer celebrate festivals. You no longer give thanks before meals. Uh, you no longer have a regular spiritual practice setting aside time to um, develop uh, your consciousness. Uh, you no longer have holy days and festivals in which you participate. You no longer hear talks 
designed to help you lead a better life, like sermons. Instead, you just get lectures which are facts. Um, and so he's proposing um, a whole series of atheist uh, practices uh, to recover some of these benefits of religion. He's already started a series of Sunday morning sermons in London um, of an atheist type uh, without all the other part of the liturgy. Um, um, I can't imagine quite what they're like. I hope they're fun. Um, um, he's also been planning an atheist temple in London since he inherited 200 million pounds. He's well in a good position to make it happen if he wants to. Um, um, and there's also an atheist church, the Sunday Assembly, which has more than 70 branches now in Britain. Now, I mention this to show that uh, the benefits of spiritual practices are now widely recognized even by people who are not just with no religion, but act actively anti-religion. Um, and I suspect that through doing these practices, their opposition to religion will actually decrease. The atheist church called the Sunday Assembly started off calling itself an atheist church, but it now prefers the title mystical humanism. So um, I think we're in a very interesting phase at the moment of uh, spiritual evolution and development. In my previous book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I spoke about seven practices, uh, with, starting with meditation, then connecting with nature, relating to plants, singing, chanting, um, and, uh, and the power of music, the practice of gratitude, rituals, and finally pilgrimage. And um, all of these practices are widely practiced in all religions. And uh, one of them, the pilgrimage, um, is something which is now happening on an increasing scale here in Britain. There's an astonishing revival of pilgrimage here in uh, Britain. And in fact, one of my colleagues, uh, I'm a patron of the British Pilgrimage Trust, one of the founders of it, uh, Dr. Guy Haywood, uh, who is a colleague of mine, is actually here this evening. Guy, would you mind standing up so people can see who you are? <laughs> um, so if you want to talk to Guy about it afterwards, uh, Guy is one of the co-founders and leads guided pilgrimages on foot in Britain, reopening the ancient footpath routes. Now, in this new book, Ways to Go Beyond, um, I deal with the further seven practices. Um, the first one is sports, and that may be surprising because most people don't think of sports as a spiritual practice, but I think for many people in the modern world, it's one of the most important, even though it's normally seen as entirely secular. Uh, the second, I'll come back to that. The second one is learning from animals. Again, you may not think of this as particularly spiritual, but again, I'll return to that and explain why I think for many people it is uh, a, a spiritual practice. Um, it's not normally done as a spiritual practice, but it has a spiritual dimension, which for many people is extremely important. Um, then um, uh, the next one I discuss is fasting, something present in all religious traditions, uh, certainly within the Christian tradition during Lent, which starts uh, very soon, um, in fact, on March the 6th, um, next week, is Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. 
Um, then, perhaps controversially, I have a chapter on uh, spiritual openings through cannabis and psychedelics, because I think for many people in the modern world, especially they've been people who've been raised in a completely non-religious and secular way, um, these drugs can lead to a, a spiritual opening. Um, and for many people, it's like a kind of rite of passage. Again, I'll come back to these. I'm just summarizing the titles of the chapters at the moment. Um, then, um, after that, I, I have a chapter on prayer. And I'm talking here about petitionary prayer, asking for things. And I shall again come back to that to contrast it with meditation. Meditation in the Christian tradition is called contemplative prayer. It's one kind of prayer, but it's a very different kind of prayer from petitionary prayer. And I shall talk about uh, petitionary prayer this evening. Um, and then uh, I have a, a chapter called Holy Days and Festivals, uh, which are present in all traditions. And what we now call holidays are, of course, holy days in their secularized form. Um, and these are a very important part of uh, spiritual practice because they create space uh, for other practices to happen, uh, for people to celebrate together, for families to spend time together, um, and uh, for fun and enjoyment, which is one of the principal points of our lives. And it's easily squeezed out if we forget about holy days and festivals, the 24-7 culture of con continuous online shopping, shopping, Facebook messaging, etc., takes over and distracts us and, and just fills people's lives, kind of wall-to-wall -wall busyness uh, from which we definitely need these rests. And finally, I talk about the... Um, the practice of virtues, the avoidance of vices, cultivating good habits, avoiding bad habits, and being kind. Because all practices um, traditionally take place within ethical or religious frameworks. You may have a wonderful time meditating or going on pilgrimages or whatever, but unless uh, this benefits other people and helps the world we live in, then it can be, become a selfish pursuit. Uh, in the end, it has to be within a framework of helping others. Okay, well, let me return now to the subject of sports. Sports are enormously popular in the modern world, and for many people, uh, sports are the principal way in which they come into the present. There have been many studies of the way our minds work and what goes on in the brain um, while we're in different states of consciousness. And one of the things that happens to practically all of us is that as soon as you're not actually engaged in doing something, there's uh, uh, regions of the brain that are linked up together called the default mode network swing into action. And what happens is you start worrying, ruminating, fantasizing, daydreaming, uh, and, and just engaging in an internal dialogue, just thoughts ceaselessly going through your mind. Well, everyone who's, who's meditated, everyone here has meditated since we all just did it together, even if you've not done it before, uh, notices that there are lots of thoughts going through the mind. And uh, it's, you keep getting engaged with this train of thoughts. But 
the two main techniques of meditation, the mantra-based meditation, like the method we were using this evening, and mindfulness meditation, which is more about looking at the breathing or sensations within the body, both provide an alternative focus of attention from the thoughts, which normally completely engage us. So they help to disengage us from this train of thoughts. The thoughts can still go on, but if we keep returning to the mantra or to looking at the breathing, then uh, the power of these thoughts to trap all our attention and our minds gets weaker and weaker, and there are periods when they fade away, and then we have a period of a, a calm, peace, often joy. Um, and, and these thoughts, the stopping of these thoughts is the cessation of the default mode network. But being engaged in a physical activity can shut it down even faster than meditation. A friend of mine who was a, a very busy in his business life um, told me that when he was at his busiest, he just couldn't stop thinking. He couldn't sleep at night. His mind was racing the whole time. He tried meditating, but it didn't work. Um, but he was a mountaineer. And he told me that he, when he went rock climbing, by the time he was 50 feet up a rock face, he was completely in the present. You know, if he wasn't, he wouldn't, wouldn't have found the, the toe holds and the finger holds. Um, someone skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour and going around a corner that could be an obstacle has to be totally attentive to what they're engaged in. Otherwise, they'll crash into something and break a leg or even kill themselves. Someone in the middle of a football match where the ball's being passed and the tremendous excitement and stuff has to be totally present in that moment. Uh, it's no use sort of worrying if they've paid the gas bill or thinking about some remark their girlfriend said to them the other day that upset them and that kind of thing. You have to be completely present. Um, this is true uh, of all sports in which uh, uh, there's a high level of engagement. And I think it's one of the reasons that um, many people find speed thrilling. The thrill of speed comes about when you're engaged in an activity where the motive power is not your own. You can run faster, you can swim fast, but it's not the same as when you have the thrill of speed from going downhill where the motive power is gravity, or skydiving, something I've never done, it's also gravity, and you work up enormous speeds as you plunge out of a plane uh, at 20,000 feet, um, or surfing on a big wave or riding a motor bicycle, or in a more eco-friendly way, going downhill on a regular bicycle very fast, or driving a racing car or a jet plane. All these activities um, force people to be completely in the present, because the very fact you're going so fast means it's extremely dangerous, and if you get it wrong, if that slight movement of your hands on the steering wheel of a racing car or slight change in your balance on skis, if it's not exactly right, you could die. And some people want that throw that edge of danger to be intensified yet further, which is why we've had in the last um, 50 years or so the development of a whole range of extreme or dangerous sports where people do things that are deliberately dangerous. It's like the other side of the coin of the prevalent 
health and safety culture we all live in. I mean, normally, risk aversion is the name of the game, and health and safety has to be evaluated at all turns. But what about base jumping, where people jump off skyscrapers with a small parachute they open only at the last moment, or wearing some kind of flipper-a-wing type things, like a flying squirrel? Or free diving, where they go 200 feet below the surface of the sea with no oxygen and no apparatus of any kind? If they get it wrong, they're dead. Um, uh, so these dangerous and extreme sports have become more and more common in the modern world um, because I think that take, puts people even more in that position of being on the absolute edge of death, of, of the danger of death, which focuses their attention very, very intensely. Meditating, uh, your mind can wander a bit and you can come back uh, to your mantra, you're not going to die. Uh, but if you're engaged in one of these other activities, there's no leeway at all. You have to be totally present. And I think that's one of the reasons that they're so popular in the modern world, because they provide a way in which people can come totally into the present and get out of all this distraction that fills our minds and which social media intensify even more. Some sports are practiced, I think, because they actually give people intense suffering. There's an ultramarathon in the United States called the Badwater Ultramarathon that happens in Death Valley, California in July when it's hottest. The temperatures go up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, people do it in these intense conditions of heat. It's an extremely long race. Um, only if you're extremely fit are you going to be able to complete it. Uh, people go through punishing pain and suffering in doing this. And some people who do so undergo completely different altered states of consciousness. They, through that suffering, they get into a state of kind of sublime spiritual connection. I don't know whether this happens in other cultures. I think it's perhaps a feature of Christian or post-Christian culture where Suffering as a road to salvation is uh, something everyone's aware of through the image of Jesus on a cross. Um, and the Buddha sitting sublimely under a tree doesn't have quite the same um, connotations of suffering. Um, but some of these sports take people to the very limit of human endurance. In the East, the spiritual dimension of sports has long been recognized. And um, in the 1950s, a book called Zen and the Art of Archery by Herigel came out. He was a German who spent years studying archery in Japan. And what he learned was it's not just about hitting the target with the arrow. It's about a whole state of mind, being in a state of flow, complete absorption, doing by not doing, as his Zen master told him. Um, and this was a revelation for many people in the West who never thought of this more spiritual side of sports being built into the sport itself. Oriental martial arts have this as part of it. It's not just about winning. It's not just about brute force. It's about experiencing a flow that goes through your body and a flow of energy between you and your opponent. Um, and again, it's about being completely in the present, but being in a flow which is part of a flow that goes through all nature. 
The founder of the Esalen Institute in California, Michael Murphy, who was one of the founders of the whole human potential movement in 1962, was and still is a very keen sportsman. And he was very keen on golf. And he wrote a classic in the world of golf called Golf in the Kingdom about the mystical side of golf. It sold over a million copies. It's an international bestseller. It's particularly popular among golfers because it, it talks about this uh, very spiritual dimension of golf, where you can go into an altered state of consciousness, rather like these Zen and the art of archery, uh, archery states. And his book uh, made people aware, for, for many people for the first time, of this dimension of sporting activity. And he, in fact, thinks that sports are the yoga of the West, uh, that this is one of the ways in which people in the modern world um, actually achieve a kind of spiritual discipline. And there's no doubt whatever that sports involve discipline. In, in all traditional spiritual practices, there's an element of discipline. You have to stick to it, you have to practice it. And in sports, there are millions and millions of young men and women um, engaging in extreme forms of discipline. Um, you know, People often say young people have no discipline and that sort of thing. But actually, those engaged in sports... Uh, and especially if they're doing it at a high level, have to be incredibly fit. And uh, the amount of discipline and training is enormous. So uh, the final point I'd like to make about sports is this is probably one of the frontiers of human evolution at the moment. There's been, in recent years, the invention of a great many new sports that never existed before. Skateboarding, windsurfing, uh, paragliding... Uh, and so on, a whole range of new sports, all of which involve new skills, new human experiences, new technologies, uh, that ex expand the range of human possibility and the range of human potential. Uh, we often think of human evolution as being primarily intellectual, people thinking up new equations or um, inventing new technologies or um, creating new forms of art. But I think it's probably in the realm of sport that some of the greatest innovations are happening today. But they're completely outside the, the, the normal limits of what we think of as the religious and the academic world. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it's all going on in our modern world. And I think we need to broaden our vision to see uh, this is something really big that's happening all around us. Now, I want to turn to learning from animals. One of the problems we have as humans, as I mentioned, is the default mode network, this rumination, this worrying, this, this ceaseless activity of our minds. That depends on language for the most part. Well, animals don't have language. And so it may take a lot of effort and years of practice uh, to be able to uh, come into the present without all this rumination, years of meditative practice. But if you're a cat, uh, it just comes naturally straight away. Um, if you, uh, you're in the presence of a cat that's purring, it's an uncomplicated way of being in the present, expressing the fact it's just feeling good, and it's totally in the present feeling good. And if you pay attention to a purring cat and, and be with it, uh, it can help bring you into the present. If you see a dog that's excitedly chasing a ball or a stick, it's completely in the present of that activity. If you see dolphins 
jumping through the bow waves of a boat, they seem to be completely in the present, having fun. It's like a game for them. They're doing it just for the sheer pleasure uh, of the movement. And um, I think that one of the ways that animals can teach us, uh, uh, give us spiritual lessons, is through this, uh, their ability to be in the present, much more so than most people. And um, I think that's one of the reasons that so many keep, people keep animals. About a third of British households have pets. They don't have animals because they're needed for modern life. Um, they're a nuisance, they cost a lot of money, especially with vet bills. You have to worry about what you do with them when you go on holiday and all that kind of thing. Um, so why do people go to all this trouble uh, to have extra responsibilities especially with dogs, you, you go around with little plastic bags picking up dog poo. I mean, this can't be much fun in itself. Um, why do people go to all this trouble? I think because animals give back something to us. One of those things is this ability to be in the present, and, and they help us to come into the present and just be where we are, be here now. I think another thing they show us is the power of love. Animals... Um, often form strong bonds with their owners, domestic animals. And that connection can be healing. When I first met her, my wife, Joel Pass, had a, pat, a cat called Remedy. And her cat was called Remedy because Remedy was a remedy. She, she noticed that if she was sad or upset, uh, the cat would come and sit in her lap and purr and make her feel better. If she was sick, the cat would always come and be with her. Uh, and and just stay with her until she was better. And it made her feel better. There have now been uh, many scientific studies of people who've had heart operations or other uh, medical setbacks or health problems. And people who have cats or dogs uh, with them during the healing process often get better quicker than those who don't. And this is the effect of their love, their attention, and their sharing of their presence with us. I myself suspect that animals can also uh, be, uh, have a kind of access to the world of spirit, the spirit. We normally assume in our human-centered way that only humans have a spiritual life or a spiritual dimension. Uh, but it seems to me perfectly possible that animals do as well. In the theology of the Middle Ages, um, it was taken for granted that animals uh, came forth from the divine being and had this uh, divine connection. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, in the 13th century, said that every creature strives for its own perfection and through achieving its perfection or striving for its perfection comes close to God. And it may be that a, a purring cat is in a state of spiritual bliss, not just feeling bodily pleasure. A blackbird singing its beautiful song in the spring uh, maybe uh, in a kind of transcendent state of beauty. Uh, a lizard basking in the sun, maybe in a state of samadhi. It may have a, uh, maybe in a state of actual spiritual connection. Why not? I mean, if God is, uh, in, in, is joy as part of the divine nature, as all religions teach, and if all creatures come forth from God, there's no reason why they shouldn't uh, uh, actually relate to that aspect of the divine in their own way. 
And of course, in many cultures, it's taken for granted that animals have a spiritual dimension. They have, they're, they're sacred animals in India, for example. If you go to a temple in South India, by the gateway of the temple, there's very often an elephant, the temple elephant, standing there. And um, if you want, you can go and have a blessing from the temple elephant. I love being blessed by temple elephants when I'm in South India. You stand there, the elephant's in front of you, puts its trunk over and touches you on the top of the head to give you a blessing. The trunk then swivels round and there it is in front of you expecting uh, a payment, a 20 rupee note, um, which it hands to its mahout. Um, so they have a perfect system going there and uh, <laughs> the elephants pay for themselves because uh, this goes to um, pay for their food, which they get through a lot of. Uh, even rats are sacred in India. Um, they're the vehicle of the elephant-headed god Ganesh. Um, I discovered this to my surprise when I was living in India. I worked in an agricultural institute in Hyderabad. I lived in the wing of a crumbling palace, and it was a beautiful place. I mean, lovely verandas, beautiful arches, but the roof leaked during the monsoon. And there was another problem that I soon discovered. Um, one night when I was asleep, I felt something walking over my face and then something scaly trailing over my cheek. I was so terrified when I realized I was a rat was walking over my face. I was completely paralyzed. I couldn't move, I couldn't scream. I, it was a kind of sleep paralysis, kind of atavistic paralysis. So the next morning I asked my cook, who was a Hindu, uh, to buy a rat trap and to, to get rid of these rats. And when I came back in the evening, He'd bought a live rat trap, and in this sort of cage trap, there was a live rat. So I asked him to get rid of it, to kill it. And he told me, he said, but sir, I cannot kill the rat. I said, but why not? And he said, because it is the sacred animal of the vehicle of Ganesh, sir. He said, it would be very bad luck to kill the rat. I cannot do it, sir. And he said, excuse me, I am sorry, I cannot do it. So I said, well, what do you propose? And, and you know, what's your idea? He said, so I will get rid of it. I take it away. So he put it on the back of his bicycle and pedaled off. And about an hour later, he came back and said, so, so it is far, far away. I've let it go. And after that, when I was going around Hyderabad, I noticed all over the city people with cages with rats in on the back of their bicycles. <laughs> and the total number of rats remained the same, but they were constantly being redistributed. <laughs> um, so um, I think that uh, we, we are often too human-centered in our uh, attitudes to spirituality. So I think... These are some of the ways in which we can learn from uh, non-human animals. There are other ways too, I don't have time to go into them all. Um, they're in, in the book, this is just a summary of some of the points. Um, so now I want to turn to fasting. Fasting is present in every tradition. Jewish people fast at Yom Kippur, Hindus have a variety of fasts throughout the year. Muslims fast during the daylight hours, during Ramadan, um, and their fast involves not just not eating, but also not drinking anything, uh, a more rigorous form of fast, but shorter than in some other traditions, because it's only during the daylight hours. But in long summer days here in England, in hot weather, where you've got to go without fluids for 14, 16 hours, it must be very difficult. 
Um, then, um, you know, other religions have their fast chains, Sikhs, uh, it's present in all traditions. Uh, the most common kind is uh, going without food and just having water or fluids. And in the Christian tradition, Lent, the fasting month with 40 fasting days, uh, is the traditional fasting period starting next week. Now, many Christians here in England don't do much for Lent. Some of them give up biscuits or chocolate or something. When I was in India, living there, Indian Christians take it much more seriously. Religious standards are much higher in India. Um, and typically, the traditional thing is to give up meat, uh, which is one reason why Shrove Tuesday, the feast before the fast, uh, is carnival. Um, carne vale, farewell to meat. Um, and so the, the, here's this practice. What's going on here? Well, in most religious traditions, uh, fasting precedes a feast. Uh, you fast, then you feast. And I think this actually uh, mirrors a pattern that all our ancestors would have had anyway. Um, in natural conditions, uh, our human ancestors, who were hunter-gatherers, and all other animal species live in situations where they don't get regular food every single day. Uh, they have periods when there's plenty of food, when there's lots of fruit on the trees in the autumn. I mean, birds, for example, garden birds, get lots of berries and fruit in the autumn. Uh, but then in the winter, they have a very, very thin time of it. They, they may spend days without food. Um, and in, in, under wild conditions, most animals have adapted and evolved to have periods when they get food, to periods of plenty, and periods when they don't have food. And that's the way animal bodies work. And these periods without food are natural and actually extremely healthy. All organisms that have been studied so far do better if they have periods without food. Even bacteria like E. coli live much longer if you give them a period with no food. Yeast cells live much longer without food. You can double the lifespan by withdrawing food from these yeast cells. The same is true nematode worms and fruit flies. And in studies with mice, for example, if you feed mice every alternate day instead of every day, so they're only getting fed half the time, they live 30% longer than mice that are fed every day. They're, they're healthier and live longer. And studies on uh, animals and on people who are not receiving food show that during these periods of starving or starvation, which if it's involuntary or fasting if it's voluntary, um, there are tremendous physiological changes. For a start, uh, you use up the reserves of glycogen in your liver within about 12 hours. So after about 12 hours, you start using the, f the food reserves in your fat cells. And um, all of us have uh, quite large fat reserves, even if we're not fat people. Uh, calculations show that the average American could walk from New York to Florida uh, without any food at all, entirely on the basis of fat stored in their bodies. In one study, a clinical study in England, a rather obese young man in the north of England went without food for 382 days 
Um, and he was clinically supervised during this period, but ended up far ha uh, healthier and fitter and, of course, thinner as a result of that. Um, one of the things that happens during um, starvation or fasting is that senescent cells in the brain and elsewhere in the body that don't break down properly and cause inflammation um, in this period of fasting are broken down and it sort of cleans up all this junk throughout the body. Some people think these senescent cells play an important role in initiating Alzheimer's disease. And so it could be the case that if people fasted regularly, they'd be less prone to Alzheimer's. This is not proved, but it seems likely on the basis of what's known. Um, also, fasting causes a release of pituitary growth hormone from, from the pituitary gland, which stimulates regenerative processes in the body. So it, it has a rejuvenating effect on the whole body. Uh, so fasting is, other things being equal, good for health. It can also lead to actual cure of type 2 diabetes, which is caused by excessive consumption of food, especially sugars, on too regular a basis. So um, fasting um, can have many health benefits. Not for everybody. There are dangers of people who are anorexic shouldn't fast, people who've been ill and have had a, a, have lost a lot of weight, not a good idea. People who are on lots of medications should seek medical advice. Um, people who've got diabetes need to do it carefully because they could go into a hypoglycemic coma. And if anyone um, is in doubt, then they should certainly seek advice from a professional. Most regular doctors don't know much about fasting. They're not taught about it in medical school, and most of them have not done it. The practitioners who do know most about it, who have made a big thing of studying it and, uh, and guiding people doing it, uh, are naturopaths and Ayurvedic practitioners. So if you're thinking of doing a fast, and if you think you might have problems, you need help, then naturopaths or Ayurvedic practitioners are the people to, best people to ask, in my experience. Um, Fasting also leads to changes in the uh, chemistry of the body. As you break down fat, fat cells, uh, through the breakdown of fat, which you're living on when you're fasting, um, there are products of fat breakdown circulate in the blood called ketone bodies. This condition is called ketosis. And the three main ketones, which is a class of chemical compound, uh, acetone, um, acetoacetic acid, and beta-hydroxybutyric acid. And uh, these circulate in the blood. They have a sweetish smell, which is why the urine and breath of people who are fasting smell slightly sweet. They also affect the brain. One of the principal transmitters in the brain, neurotransmitters, is called gamma-aminobutyric acid, GABA. And when you're fasting, the levels of beta-hydroxybutyric acid in the blood go over into the brain and raise the levels of gamma-aminobutyric acid. Uh, they also raise the levels of um, um, gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, the one in the blood's beta-hydroxybutyric acid. Gamma-hydroxybutyric acid is itself a neurotransmitter, GBH. It's also a street drug taken by people because it induces euphoria and is supposed to be uh, an aphrodisiac. Um, it's a, quite a dangerous street drug because it has such strong effects. But it changes the mood 
and, and the subjective experience. So these are mind-altering, uh, these, these, uh, the, these effects of fasting. And people who are fasting find that um, after the f first day, they usually feel less hungry. I mean, the first day you can feel really hungry. The first time you do it, you often get a headache because of the flushing out of toxins from your fat cells. Uh, but after the same day, you feel less hungry. And most people who've done it, including me, I do it every year during Lent, um, find that their mind becomes clearer, um, it's easier to pray and to meditate. And um, people often have more vivid dreams. And it's for these reasons that it's been practiced in all religions. It actually is an aid to um, meditative and, and prayerful activity. It also has this detoxifying effect on the body. So if you do it during Lent, if you're a Christian, or in Ramadan if you're a Muslim, or in a Hindu fasting period if you're a Hindu, you get a double benefit, a spiritual benefit and also a health benefit. Um, so um, anyway, fasting uh, is um, something that, uh, as I say, I, I always do it myself during Holy Week, the last period of Lent, just before Easter, for three days, four days, five days, between three and seven days. And I've been doing this for more than 30 years. And um, I personally find it a practice that is well worth including in, in, in my life. Um, and if some of you have never tried it, you might like to consider trying it. And it, I find it a, a good period to do it in Lent because there's a tradition behind it. Other people are doing it. You can, of course, do it any time you like, but uh, Lent works best for me. Now, um, psychedelics. Psychedelics alter people's minds. That's what the very name means. Psychedelic means psyche-revealing. And the, uh, uh, they've been used in traditional shamanic cultures in various parts of the world. In West Africa, uh, the psychedelic root, iboga, uh, has been used in healing and visionary ceremonies for a long time. In the Amazon, the mixture of two plants, ayahuasca, one of which contains dimethyltryptamine, DMT, um, has been used in shamanic healing ceremonies, vision ceremonies, and initiation practices for a long, long time. No one knows how long. In Mexico, people have taken visionary mushrooms uh, in shamanic cultures. Um, and uh, in the ancient world, they were part of major religions. In the Rig Veda is famously full of hymns to Soma, uh, a mixture, a brew which people took, which led to visionary states. Hinduism is grounded in these kind of psychedelically altered states, but nobody knows what Soma was. The ancient Greeks had the Eleusinian mysteries. They had a period living dark in, in a dark cave where they took a, a brew, again, no one knows what it was, but it had a visionary effect, and they had uh, ceremonies and rituals there preceding their emergence into the light at the end of this initiatory process. So there's a, a long spiritual history of these drugs. Um, in the modern world, they've become, uh, because they're illegal, um, they've become... Uh, 
they're often taken by people under highly unsuitable circumstances, and people often get drugs that aren't pure or adulterated. Uh, some young people take them in very ill-advised conditions, and they push them over the edge into psychosis. So this is not an unqualified benefit. But I think it's possible for psychedelic drugs to have an important spiritual role. And one place in which this is happening in the modern world is through the psychedelic churches. Some of you may be aware of the fact that in Brazil uh, there are now several different psychedelic churches where the visionary brew ayahuasca is taken as a sacrament. One of these churches is called Santo Daime. It was founded in the 1930s by people living in the Amazon jungle who had visions of... Uh, they, they learned about ayahuasca from shamanic cultures but they had visions of um, the possibility of a whole new kind of Christianity. The visions came through uh, what they thought of as Our Lady, Queen of the Forest, a green form of the Blessed Virgin, and she's the patroness of this particular church. Um, and in their ceremonies, they, um, they, they, they say they are Father and the Hail Mary, they chant together, they sing together, and then they take this brew together. And the person leading it is an expert in this. And if people freak out or he knows what to do, I mean, they, they, these are expert leaders of these ceremonies. These churches are now um, well established all over Europe. There are several of them here in England. Some people have called this a reverse missionary movement. Um, and I think that they have an importance because in traditional cultures, rites of passage involve people undergoing a death and rebirth experience that wasn't just um, symbolic. They actually had the feeling they were dying and being born again. I think the principal Christian rite of passage originally was exactly that, as I've mentioned here before, last time I was here. I think that baptism was originally practiced uh, involved a near-death experience. I think John the Baptist was a drowner. I think he held people under just long enough in the River Jordan uh, to induce a near-death experience by drowning. And he may have lost a few, but that was, that was before health and safety uh, uh, litigation and, 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 and liability litigation. Um, so what happened was that people went there, they were immersed in the river, they were held under and they said they'd died, they'd, been, they'd seen the light, and they'd been born again. That's exactly what people who've had near-death experiences say. Within a few generations in the early church, they'd adopted infant baptism, sprinkling water on babies, which was symbolic. But in the ferment of the Reformation, uh, the most radical Protestant groups, uh, the Anabaptists, read the Bible and read about John the Baptist and said, well, look, what's going on in the churches isn't what it says in the Bible. Let's do it again that way. They reinstated um, uh, baptism by total immersion. And they went round saying they'd had this spiritual vision, they'd died, they'd seen the light, and they'd been reborn. They'd... And today it's, it's precisely the Baptists who go around saying, have you been born again? Um, and I think that in the Baptist tradition, this wasn't just symbolic. It wouldn't have that power if it was just, you know, just a, a sort of momentary immersion. Nowadays, among Southern Baptists or in America or Baptists here in England, I dare say 
it is more symbolic and the most Baptist pastors would probably be very reluctant to take it as far as a near-death experience. Um, but I think this offered a, a rite of passage which in many cultures is something that has been part of the tradition. You go close to death and through that you have a kind of regenerative experience, you pass into a new way of being. I think that's why these rites of passage are reinvented in the context of sports as well. Uh, putting people up against conditions of extreme endurance where they undergo a radical change of consciousness, a kind of death and rebirth experience. I can envisage a time when regular churches could outsource this kind of rite of passage to Santo Daime practitioners and young people could go on retreats where they have under controlled and supervised conditions a, a, a rite of passage which does involve a completely altered state of consciousness. Um, and in many countries, the, in some countries, the, this is legal. There are thousands of people go from Britain every year to Peru and Brazil to undergo the supervised retreats with ayahuasca. This is very different from just taking LSD in, in drunken parties or in, in, in excessively hot nightclubs and things. Um, it's a different thing, and we're on the threshold, I think, of a new approach to psychedelics now that research on them has become legal in many countries. Um, so I mention that because I think this is a dimension of spiritual experience which is very important to a lot of young people, but it's completely under the radar of the official educational system and the official legal system and indeed the, the official churches. Now, finally, I want to say something about prayer. Uh, petitionary prayer differs from meditation in that it's asking for things, it's directing the attention outwards. In meditation, you withdraw your attention from the external world. You close your eyes, you sit still. Uh, you can become aware of sounds and so on, but you're not engaging with them. And you're not engaging with, or you're trying not to engage with those thoughts which are all about worries about what you do next and what you should have done and all that kind of thing. You're letting go of all that and by concentrating on the mantra or the breathing. I, so I think of that meditation as a practice is like breathing in. Um, you're withdrawing from the world, taking your attention within. Petitionary prayer is almost the opposite. It, petitionary prayers you start by invoking a spiritual being. Uh, each prayer opens with an invocation, Hail Mary, full of grace, Our Father, who art in heaven, Om Namah Shivaya, or whoever it is that you're invoking. Um, and having made that connection through the invocation, there's usually then a few sentences about that being, usually praise, thanksgiving, and so forth. And then it moves on to the requests. And what you're doing is connecting the spiritual call that you contact through this invocation uh, and linking it to your outer concerns, people who are sick you want to pray for, problems in the world you want to pray about, distant places where there have been accidents or disasters you want to pray for people there, um, um, prayers for protection. Um, these are found in all cultures and um, I think that they're not an alternative to meditation. I think they're complementary. I think there's one's like breathing in and the other's like breathing out. It's directing your attention outwards to things that are important or matter to you and your family. 
uh, also the wider world. And I myself do both. I meditate in the mornings and before I go to bed in the evening I pray. I start with the Our Father and the Hail Mary. And then I go into more free-form prayers about everything that is things that have happened that day that are happening the next day, giving thanks for what's happened uh, in, in, in the day, um, praying for people I know, my family and others, um, and for people I've met. And, and so I'm, I just wanted to make that point because in, in, in my chapter on prayer I discuss the assumptions that are behind petitionary prayer and um, the, the practice of it. It's much easier for people in the modern world to meditate than to pray. It's the opposite of what it would have been a hundred years ago. And uh, I know everyone in this room meditates because we all did it together just at the, the beginning. Uh, but there are, in, in many modern circumstances, there are more people who meditate than pray. And I think it's partly because if you're an atheist or if you don't have any particular religious faith or tradition, then meditation's easier because atheists believe it's all happening inside their head. They meditate, they get the benefits, but they think it's all just inside the brain, neurotransmitters, changes in nerve endings, and so forth. Uh, you don't need to believe anything to meditate. You don't need to have a prior belief. You can just do it, and that's a great strength. You, you start with the practice, you have the experience. Prayer does require uh, some kind of prior belief, you can't pray unless you believe there's something to pray to. If you think that gods, angels, saints uh, and uh, are all figments of your own imagination inside your head, then it's not very convincing to pray to them. Uh, prayer does presuppose there are forms of consciousness out there who can hear us, who can hear our prayers, even if they're silent, and respond to them. And so that does require a greater faith. Among um, a recent survey of British atheists working in science, engineering and technology, um, about 10% uh, of them meditate on a regular basis, but about 0% pray. Um, so um, uh, the, so uh, among religious people then many pray and meditate, or many just pray and don't meditate, but uh, there's a big difference there uh, between uh, Anyone can meditate, but not everyone can pray. To pray, you have to think there's something beyond yourself. Now, finally, I just want to say something about how it is that such completely different practices can uh, connect us to the realm of the spirit. Why is it that sport, which involves movement, and involvement in physical movement, um, uh, can be a spiritual practice, and meditation can, uh, which involves sitting completely still. There are many kinds of spiritual practice. In these two books I discuss 14, and there are many more besides those as well. Um, and they seem at first sight completely different. How can they relate to the realm of the spirit? Well, for an atheist, then they're all working just inside the... For a materialist atheist, they're, work, they're just working inside the brain. It's nothing but changes in the brain. But the experience of these practices is one of being part of a greater consciousness. And for most people, they do suggest that there are forms of consciousness beyond our own. And the traditional way of thinking about more than human consciousness, of the ultimate consciousness, um, is surprisingly similar in different traditions. 
The nature of ultimate consciousness, as conceived of in the Hindu tradition, um, is as sat-chit-ananda, being, consciousness, bliss. Sat is being, the ground of being, the ground of being and, and consciousness itself. Chit is more about the contents of consciousness, the names and forms, nama, rupa, as the Hindus say, uh, the, what you can know. So sat is like the knower, chit is more the known, that which you can know, uh, the contents of consciousness. And then there's a third principle, which ananda is joy. Also in the Hindu tradition, uh, as interpreted as the flow of the spirit or shakti, um, uh, which is the moving principle. The Christian version of ultimate reality is again Trinitarian. Uh, the Christian conception of God is a, a threefold in nature. Uh, God the Father is the ground of being, the ground of consciousness, conscious being in the present. When Moses encounters God in the burning bush and says, who are you? God says, I am that I am. A statement of conscious being in the present. I, subjective conscious being, am in the present. Um, conscious being in the present. The second person of the Christian trinity, the Logos, is, or the word, is the... Um, is the names and forms of all things in creation. Um, the Logos, or the Son, uh, as it says in the Creed, through him all things were made, the source of all forms and of all structures and all meanings and connections. Uh, it's, in a sense, the way the Christian, early Christians assimilated the Platonic realm of forms and ideas into the Christian Trinity. This realm of forms and ideas was not ultimate consciousness by itself, it was part of a greater consciousness that included the ground of being and sustaining, uh, which sustains all things. And the Holy Spirit is the breath, the wind, or the principle of change, the dynamical principle, um, which um, is what gives change, activity, actuality in, in nature. The principal model is, of course, speech. The, um, the metaphor is something we all participate in every time we speak. Right now, I am the speaker, um, and I, my speech has three aspects. Me, the speaker. Without me, there wouldn't be any speech. I'm the, the ground of all that happens through this speech. Um, then there's the words which I speak, which can be separated from the spoken words. If I just think those words silently, they don't come into manifestation. They only come into manifestation if they're carried on the flow of breath or spirit. Breath and spirit and wind are the same word, pneuma in Greek, ruach in Hebrew. And um, if I have just the flow of breath, there's a flow of energy, but there's no form or structure. So when I'm speaking, I have the words which have the form, the structure, the meaning, um, the connections. Uh, there's the flow of the breath on which they're carried that brings them into manifestation and changes in time. It's the moving principle. And there's the ground of both, um, which is the speaker. And that's the fundamental metaphor underlying the Christian Holy Trinity. When we look at things that way, we can see that some practices like sports, music or dancing or chanting, 
uh, are about change, they're about flow and change in time. And those relate, I think, more to the principle of the spirit. Some practices, like meditation, are more about going to the very ground of consciousness and being itself, below and beyond the forms and knowledge that can be the contents of consciousness, but to the very ground of consciousness itself, the aspect of sat, or the father. Um, and some spiritual practices, particularly those concerned with beauty, the beauty of flowers or of art or of architecture, um, uh, there is, I didn't talk about in this evening, but there's a range of practices that involve the contemplation of beauty, are more about the logos, the word, the, the structure, the form. And so when we look at the whole range of different spiritual practices, uh, none of them are just one aspect of the ultimate uh, threefoldness of consciousness. Uh, none of them are, are pure spirit, pure logos, or pure sat, or being. Um, there's always mixtures, but some emphasize one side of it more than the other. And I think these different practices give us insights into different nature, uh, different aspects of this ultimate consciousness. In all traditions, too, there's the sense that beyond all that, there's a form of consciousness beyond anything we can conceive of. Uh, God, the Godhead, as Meister Eckhart put it, or Brahman without qualities, Nirguna Brahman, as the Hindus put it, um, or Nirvana in the Buddhist tradition, is beyond anything you can say about it. But as soon as that ultimate reality comes into relationship to us and to the world, then it takes on this threefold aspect and uh, our conceptions of it in different traditions all have this kind of threefold quality as the minimum number of aspects that um, enable it to relate to the world. And I think therefore that this model helps us to understand spiritual practices better and also to understand ultimate reality better because these practices give us aspects and uh, in insight and direct experience of different aspects of it. As I said, I think we're in the, in the middle of a new phase of spiritual evolution because uh, we have access to all these different spiritual practices that we never had before. Um, they're being studied scientifically, which they haven't been before. And uh, we're in a state of religious evolution too. All religions are changing. They can't persist in the way they did in the modern world where everyone's got iPhones and knows about all these different traditions. Uh, they're undergoing evolution too. And no one knows where all this is going. That's the point about evolution. Um, but we're on the threshold, I think, of an extraordinary new phase of human spiritual evolution. And that's one of the thoughts I want to leave with you this evening. Thank you. I'd just like to share something. And was, as we began speaking, uh, a tree appeared in my, in my mind. And it was a, a tree in winter. And as you continue to speak, little buds appeared on, on the tree. And as preparation for your talk tonight, I read your book, The Science Delusion, which I, I really loved. It was over my head, but what I could understand was wonderful. But this evening was absolutely fantastic. And thank you very much. Well, thank you for that observation. No one's ever said that before. <laughs>
Yes. It's about half the people here. Yes. A guy actually has been urging me to find out, to get quantitative data. He's, he's, he is Dr. Guy Haywood with a PhD in the psychology of music and chanting. And um, he's urging, he tries to bring out the more scientific side of me in, in this particular context. You know, so it would be fascinating to know more about what proportion of people meditate and pray. Because as I say, I think the balance has changed dramatically in recent decades. Thank you for a wonderful talk, Rupert. Um, just some thoughts on what you said about we're on the, maybe the threshold of a spiritual um, um, spiritual threshold. Um, I think in these times um, where people of faith, such as yourself, from the Abrahamic faith, a Christian, and mm. myself, a Muslim, um, there is a greater need and uh, I know that you embrace this concept anyway, of being open um, to differences, because mm. differences will remain until we die, mm. even between siblings mm. and parents. Um, what do we do in that scenario, in that reality? You know, we should be able to rise above our differences and come together on a common platform, because there is a tremendous need to reach out to people through good acts and kindness because mm. there is great um, anxiety, great mm. de you know, depression and suffering in our current age. Mm. And it's been shown through that you know, faith fix can make the individual happier. Mm. Um, but it's trying to work together you know, one you know, comes across people that are extremely dogmatic or they want to try and sort of uh, promote their ideas, mm. you know, quote from the Bible, and I'm saying it's not that we need to move beyond that, you know. Mm. Uh, what do we do even though these differences remain? So I think there's a need because there's so much potential that we can achieve by working together. There's lots of sort of interfaith Muslim Christian activities yes. from the era that I come from. Yes. East London way. So maybe we need to also um, try and have the voice of reason and reasonability, you know, amongst people who are, are sort of looking in the right, same direction. I think one thing that actually helps interreligious understanding is the fact we live in a secular society where most people are not religious at all. Um, you know, two or three hundred years ago, Christians were prepared to kill each other if they belonged to a different branch of Christianity, Protestants and Catholics in the, in the, um, in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, for example. Whereas, you know, I'm a practicing Anglican. I lived two years in a Roman Catholic ashram in India with Father Bede Griffiths. Um, I had a Sufi teacher. I'd been on Hindu pilgrimages. Um, I have close Muslim friends. I was at a Sufi group in Amman, Jordan, a few months ago. Um, and I personally uh, find I have more in common with believers in other religions than I do with atheists who reject all religions. Um, and, you know, I don't know any Christians today, at least here in England, who, you know, Methodists, Anglicans, Catholics, who are at each other's throats. They see each other as cousins or brothers or sisters or uh, members of the same family. And I feel much the same about 
Islam and Judaism. Obviously, they're the religions of the book that have more in common with each other than other religions. But I also feel very close to the Hindu tradition. And my wife has a Zogchen teacher and is a you know, Tibetan uh, a practitioner. So I, I have a, a... In my own life, I, I, I totally take the point you're making. I think one of the challenges we have is to try and find ways of including people who are non-religious or anti-religious uh, because they're trying to undermine religions all over the world um, and replace them with a kind of bleak scientism, a belief in science which is isolating and depressing and um, insofar as they've succeeded in convincing most people not to be religious, they've unleashed a, a, a terrible epidemic of depression. In, it's not surprising this is the endemic mental health problem of modern industrial societies, especially in Europe, which is much less religious than anywhere else in the world. Um, so uh, one of the reasons I, I've written these books in, a, in, in, in an inclusive way is because I actually try to reach out to people who are non-religious or even anti-religious. And one of the things that has been quite successful in this is some of the work that Guy Hayward is doing with the British Pilgrimage Trust, leading pilgrimages in England to ancient holy places. People go on these pilgrimages from all different traditions. I should think the number of actual devout Christians who go on them is a small minority. The same with Santiago to Compostela, where about 300,000 people a year walked to that great shrine. And uh, they're certainly not all uh, devout Roman Catholics. Many people who are atheists or agnostics feel called to go on these pilgrimages. And they are an actual expression of a spiritual quest. And I think it leads them to a new appreciation of spirituality. And finally, I think that what we're seeing today, at least in Western countries, particularly Europe, is a new kind of spirituality. Most people were religious before because they were raised religious. We now have uh, only 5% of the population in Britain have regular uh, religious practices, going to church, mosques or synagogues. 95% don't. And uh, last year, for the first time, a majority, 51%, said they had no religion. Um, so we're in a, a new situation, and many people who are now uh, becoming religious are coming from atheism or a non-religious starting point. There's a word for this, anatheism. Anna means back to or return to or again. Um, so it's not theism, a sort of inherited theism, it's anatheism. I'm, I myself went through a long atheist phase, so I'm an example of an anatheist. Um, and I, I think that's something that most religions have no experience of dealing with, because there's never been a situation like this where most people are non-religious. In, in the past, they converted people from other religions to their religion. It's a completely different situation today. And I think religious people can also work together in finding ways to reach out to uh, those who are non-religious. And um, spiritual practices are the principal way in which I think people do return to an acknowledgement of spiritual powers greater than themselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Sheldon. Thank you for giving the talk, and it was very insightful. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to reading the rest in your book as well. Uh, my question kind of slightly relates to the last point, and maybe Guy as well, if you might be able to contribute. Uh, 
my question is, uh, why is it that many uh, mystical experiences or rather spiritual practices seem to be uh, potentiated or amplified when they're partake when they're undertaken in groups, such as like you know, team sports or pilgrimages? The effect in some ways seems to be stronger in a group. Um, I think everyone kind of has felt that at some point. I just wondered what's your take on that. Thank you. Well, I'm not absolutely sure that's the case. I mean, some practices, many people meditate individually uh, rather than in groups. I mean, for me, it was an unusual experience this evening meditating in a group. Um, and some people, some sports, uh, team sports, where people do it in a group like football, but some are more solitary, like mountaineering or, or jogging or uh, free diving. I mean, they're usually not going down in groups, they're doing it on their own. So, um, it's not obvious that they're all done in groups, but uh, all religions uh, and all tribal cultures um, have the group as a central focus. We're social animals, we're social creatures, and our life depends on doing things in groups. None of us could survive very long on our own. And the worst form of punishment most tribes and cultures can think of is solitary confinement because we so depend on other people for just our normal just sanity and normal mental health um, so I think it's part of our social nature means that doing things as groups is is important and some spiritual practices like rituals are typically done in groups singing and chanting uh, are typically done in groups you know monks chanting together people singing together in churches um, you know, people singing together in synagogues, or um, there, there's all sorts of ways in which people do things in groups, going um, praying together in groups um, in mosques and churches and so on. Um, so I think both are involved in spiritual practice, but unless we can integrate our practices with a group, um, then we're not really fully getting the point of it, because in the end it has to come back to the society as a whole. Even in Mount Athos, the monastic peninsula in Greece dedicated to monasteries, there are some people who, hermits, who live in caves, solitary uh, monks. Uh, but even the solitary monks come out of their caves for the festivals and go to the nearest monastery where they celebrate in a group for things like Christmas and Easter. Um, so even the solitary monastics uh, have a group dimension to their life. So, yes, I think the group thing is very important, but there's also this individual dynamic, too. Um, I just wondered about Michael Faraday and even ultra strict religious sects. Um, apparently, he wouldn't have got funding to date his research according to his qualifications, which he didn't have. But were you? scientific heroes for sure. Um, now I have other heroes too. I mean Newton is one and Newton was also well, Newton was a very religious man. Um, he was rather a cantankerous man too. Uh, Faraday was a saintly man who was um, a, 
a, a most extraordinarily visionary scientist, and he's it, certainly in my scientific pantheon. My sci I also include Darwin, who was much more ambiguous when it comes to the spiritual uh, realm, and Goethe, the great uh, poet and visionary in Germany. I actually have pictures up on the wall of my study of, of, of these, of my sort of pantheon of scientific um, uh, figures, and Faraday is right there among them. There's sport and animals and things that I hadn't associated with spirituality, and I thought that was very interesting. And I'm wondering if um, other things like technology, how might that relate to spirituality with this picture of the threefold path? Is it becoming increasingly more relevant in what we think about that? Well, the, the, the thing, the spiritual experiences are really about linking to forms of consciousness greater than our own. And as I said, with, if we have this Trinitarian model, then we can do it either through things that are about movement and change, which is like sports, dancing and music, or through things that are sort of beautiful, that suggest a greater dimension of consciousness just through the way they're arranged, like flowers and, and beautiful art. Or like meditation, the ground of being. I don't think technologies, since machines are unconscious, um, they may help us through, they may help us see beauty. I mean, you can see beautiful things on computer screens. The technology is a kind of medium through which you can do that. It's difficult for me to see how they could actually be um, spiritualized in... in, in um, except insofar as we give thanks to them and recognize how much we depend on them. When I lived in India, I had a great lesson about this, actually. I, I was working in an international agricultural institute. I was the principal plant physiologist at ICRASAT, the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics. And the first year I was working there, I went into the lab one day. It was on our experimental farm. I went into my plant physiology laboratory, and when I arrived, I was astonished to find the entire laboratory sort of decked out with banana leaves and palm leaves and marigold flowers and garlands. Uh, the weighing machines in our laboratory, the, the, the digital balances, uh, the other pieces of apparatus, the typewriter, were all uh, covered with sort of garlands and things. And under the wheels of the pickup truck used for collecting crops from the field, there were some limes under the wheels. And the staff asked me to, drive, to start the truck and drive it slowly forward as head of the department to crush the limes as an offering. And this was Durga Puja, the day of the goddess Durga. And in India, on the festival of Durga, people consecrate the tools of their trade to the goddess. And uh, sanctify them for the coming years. Scribes traditionally consecrated their pens, uh, you know, and, and, you know, uh, potters their wheels, and masons their mallets, and so on, and chisels. Um, but they'd adapted this to the modern world. There's this wonderfully inclusive and adaptive quality in the Hindu tradition. And at, uh, when at lunch, I was having lunch in the, the staff lunchroom with um, other scientists, and the American head of computer services told me that when he'd gone into the, his lab with the mainframe computer, in front of the computer there was a, a block of stone and a coconut on it, 
and he was asked to break the coconut as a puja, um, as for, and there were joss sticks burning all around it, to sanctify the computer, um, uh, so that it would, we'd give thanks for the computer and it would serve us well in the coming year. I was really impressed by that, because in the Christian world, uh, uh, people used to do this, and in my hometown, Newark in Nottinghamshire, uh, every year there's uh, something called Plough Sunday, when local farmers bring a plough into the church, and it's blessed for the blessing of agriculture in the coming year. So this is like a relic of an ancient world, and they bring in an old-fashioned plough. They don't drive a sort of modern combination, you know, massive tractor into the church. It's like an antiquarian relic of a former age when people did pray for their things to be blessed. But in the modern secular world, the idea is that all these things are computers, trains, buses, machinery we use, is all completely secular. And the sacred realm is confined to churches and, and little shrines and things, but the vast majority of the world is totally secularized. And for me, it was extraordinary thought that you could actually include all these things in a spiritualized way of living. But for ordinary Hindus, I mean, these were not, uh, these were just normal Hindu people working in our institute. They weren't sort of visionaries who'd come up with some new modern approach to modern life. It was happening all over India, and all the buses uh, on the streets were covered with palm leaves and things as the bus drivers had decked out the buses and lorries with, uh, it was just normal. Um, so I think it is possible, and a lot, there's a lot we could do to try and um, spiritualize the world we live in instead of seeing most of the surroundings of our normal life as being totally desacralized um, and confining the sacred to these tiny enclaves. Um, and I myself try to um, think of thing, to things I work with, you know, ask for blessing on, on them. And I mean, just uh, one point about this is that when I lived in Father Bede's ashram in, in a village in Tamil Nadu, it was on the edge of a village on the bank of the Kauvery River, um, he was the local holy man. He wore orange robes. He was a Roman Catholic Benedictine monk, but the ashram was a, in the Indian style, and he wore the orange robes uh, of, of, of a holy man in India. And whenever people built a new house in the village or extended their house, they wanted it blessed, so they'd ask Father Bede to come and bless it. And I used to go with him sometimes to the village, um, and he took holy water and blessed the houses. No one would move into a new house without having it blessed. In traditional Ireland, um, when people built a new house, they'd always have what they call a station. They'd ask the priest to come and celebrate mass in the house and invite all the neighbors, a housewarming, through sacralizing their space. Whenever I've... Um, we changed our house in London, or I, I bought a, a house in my hometown. I now ask the local priest to come and bless it, and they've never uh, refused. They've always, uh, whenever I've done this, and it's a few times now, um, they've always done it gladly, and they've done it really well. But most people in England it's never crossed their mind to have their house blessed, whereas in many traditional parts of the world, no one would dream of living in a house that's not been blessed. So I think a, a good starting point in this country is to have ask for houses to be blessed. And in many religious traditions, this is considered completely normal. Whereas in modern secular Britain, 
it, most people had never even given it a moment's thought, never crossed their mind that this is even a possibility. Just, just following up on that point, um, the kind of in, involvement of, of religion in daily life perhaps was something that was more prevalent in this country prior to the Reformation. But um, my kind of viewpoint is, is that the Reformation had made of the immense difference to our religious life such that, as you say today, people, a lot of people say they are spiritual but not religious. And that might be because they don't find much spirituality in the churches as, as they find them today. Yeah. And they're put off by the, the, the kind of um, understanding that they have of churches. So having said all that, can you see any way for churches in, in this country to kind of re-energize people in a spiritual way so that uh, they don't suffer from this continued decline that those churches are now? I think part of the problem is the uh, distorted perception people have of churches. I mean, I'm always meeting people who say, oh, they never go to church, and it's all about believing evolution doesn't happen, or all about hierarchical power structures, etc., that are oppressive to women and so forth. I mean, this was probably true years ago, but it was also true of the army, it was true of universities, it was true of everything. Um, since I'm a regular churchgoer, I go on Sunday wherever I am, and uh, so I see a whole range of churches. You know, there are women priests, there are women bishops, there, uh, it's not, uh, most people in churches are not there out of power, and there's very little power, and certainly very little money associated with it. No one's in it for the money. Um, so one's dealing with a series of prejudices that were really propaganda at the end of the 18th century, a, a sort of anti-religious propaganda, uh, which educated people have been instilled with and very often corresponds to nothing in their own experience. Most young people today have never been in a church and certainly not been oppressed by it or abused by it. I mean, they don't know anything about it. Um, so I think that one of the things that churches can do is to reach out to people through experience. I mean, what people want is experience. They're not particularly interested in biblical exegesis, since many of them don't know anything much about the Bible anyway. Um, I, one of the things that uh, I think can happen is this pilgrimage. Through pilgrimage, people can reconnect with our ancient holy places. For example, um, every year I take my teenage godson on a pilgrimage to one of our great cathedrals. We walk the last five or six miles. Um, we go with an intention, we light candles, we have a cream tea, uh, we go to Coralim Song, and then we go home. And it's the most wonderful way to spend a, a day with a godchild. And our great cathedrals were built to alter people's state of consciousness. They're not functional buildings. I mean, the height of the vaults in you know, Lincoln Cathedral, York Minster, or our great, or Ely Cathedral, or Westminster Abbey. I mean, these are not just meeting places with functional. They're, they're built to cause an expansion of the mind, the stained glass windows to expand the vision, a kind of psychedelic type visionary experience. And <coughs> they work today, and I think that going on pilgrimage to them, or for many people, going to choral evensong in cathedrals, which happens every day, happens in Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's practically every day of the week, five o'clock here in London, Oxton, Cambridge, there's four or five every day in different colleges. Um, 
exquisitely beautiful, wonderfully trained choirs. You don't have to sign up to a belief system to go. It's free. And one of the things Dr. Guy Hayward does is runs a wonderful website called choralevensong.org, where you can look up where these services are, the ones near you, and what they're singing um, every day of the week, free. Um, so I think it's another way churches can help people through sharing something that's already happening, uh, have an experience uh, which is for many people inspiring and uplifting and doesn't require them to sign up to a belief system. And churches at the moment in the Church of England are being quite innovative. They've just started a new series of things called Sacred Space. Um, happened in Lincoln Cathedral for the first time a few months ago. There's one in St. Martin in the Fields, I think, quite soon where in the evening, on Sunday evenings, seven or eight o'clock in the evening, people can go there and just be in that space. And a guy went to one in Lincoln recently where the presenter in charge of the services at the cathedral uh, handed out yoga mats to people as they went in so they could lie on the floor in the cathedral and absorb the arches and the, the vaults. I mean, it's a fantastic way to experience cathedrals, to lie on the floor. And I've been doing it surreptitiously for a while now. Um, you know, I do it sort of slightly when no one's looking because I'm afraid it'll cause an emergency or they'll think <laughs> I've had a heart attack or something. Um, but now they've taken this on board. This is just in the last few months. And, and actually got yoga mats so you can actually experience the space in that way. So I think there's various people are responding uh, uh, to this. Um, and I, I hope there's more of this kind of response because I think it's very important to reach out to people. And churches in the past were used not just for services, but especially the naves of churches and cathedrals for many communal activities as well. And many churches are trying to find ways of being, uh, you know, playing a part in community life that's not just about um, conventional services. So, I mean, there ought to be more of this, and I agree with you, it's a very urgent need, but uh, there is, there's more going on than most people realise. And there are people within, at least within the Church of England, who are, seem very open to doing things in a new way, fortunately. Well, one final question. Um, in terms of their power to transform, how, how much difference does it make? How much difference is the attitude Well, I think that it does make a difference because, um, you know, if, if you think there's a form of consciousness beyond your own to which you can connect, then it's more likely to happen than if you think it's all just inside your brain. Um, but I think people who think it's all just inside their brain, they're able to start doing these practices if, they, if, if they're told they can just do it and see what happens. That's what happened to me when I first took... Uh, when, I, when I first um, started meditating around 1971, I was at Cambridge, I was an atheist, I was interested in exploring consciousness. And I did the Transcendental Meditation course. And they said, you don't need to believe anything. Just do this, sit quietly, use this mantra, see what happens. That was a wonderful approach for me, because it meant I didn't have to sign up to a belief system. 
but it changed my view of consciousness through doing it. Um, if they said you've got to believe in the Vedas and the Upanishads and study uh, the Bhagavad Gita for six months before you even do this practice and then you've got to believe in the Guru and that he's totally inspired by God and do an obeisance to the Guru and all that kind of thing. Uh, it would have put me off. I wouldn't have done it. Um, so I think that the, uh, the strength of these practices is that they work on the basis of experience. You, do it, it, you, you start from experience rather than belief or dogma. And for many people, that's a way in. And they then, as I did, got interest in the philosophy. You know, what is the Hindu theory of consciousness? What is going on in meditation? Why do I feel there's something greater than myself? And could that possibly be true? And so it started me off on a course of inquiry. Um, but it started from experience. And actually, when you look historically, all religions start from experience. I mean, the Buddha didn't become enlightened through doing a PhD. Um, uh, Jesus didn't get to where he was through uh, just going to a rabbinical school and studying the Torah. It happened through the experience in his baptism when he was immersed by John the Baptist and emerged and had this vision of his, uh, the presence of God in his life, which was totally transformative. It's the moment at which he became aware of his relationship to, to God. Um, so I think that starting from experience is a perfectly good way to do it, and I think that this can work for people even if they have no beliefs to start with. But if they do have uh, uh, the idea that there's God or um, spirit or Brahman uh, before they do these practices, if it's just an idea, it's a kind of abstract concept, and it's only through doing the practices that it will become a living experience for them. So even if they have that idea, it's not enough just to have the idea. You have to have the experience as well to really know what you're talking about or have some glimpse of what you're talking about.